The other thing that we sang in that song, um, do we feel the world is broken? And we said, we do. And, and I know that people are coming to church this morning, and that reality is particularly relevant for you. The world feels broken. Maybe you feel broken, and maybe there are issues in your life that testify to the brokenness of this world. I bet you are here with burdens of some sort, challenges. It could be in the job that you're facing, could be in the marriage that you have, it could be with children that you love, it could be in the life circumstance you found yourself in, not what you hoped. It could be that you're overwhelmed. It could be that you're discouraged. You come with burdens. And my hope this morning is to point you to Christ. There's so much that you can hear about the news. The news cycles going 24-7. You could turn on the news on your TV or you could look at it on social media and that stuff will get you more anxious and more worried and more wound up. And I want to point you to the best news, the news about Jesus. And I want to point out, and we're going to reflect on, the the study this morning will be about greatness, true greatness. We're going to behold greatness, and then we're also going to think about the, the way that greatness can be a part of our own lives. And that might think, you might think that that's odd to think of greatness as being something that you can attain to. Uh, greatness? Uh, maybe that's too, too lofty of a word. I mean, considering what I've just said about burdens and challenges and brokenness, you might have given up on greatness a long time ago. Uh, you maybe have been facing so much disappointment, so much personal failure, so much struggle that the idea of you being great seems so distant, so out of reach, you've put it out of the question Maybe you've even begun to think that I can't be great, and so mediocrity is what I will settle for. But what Holy Spirit, he's going to call you to it and empower you for it. What if true greatness was actually within your grasp? What if you've been trying to grab for greatness in all the wrong ways, and Jesus would show us the right way? to attain real greatness, not necessarily the greatness that the world recognizes, but the greatness that God says is great. And what if, by the grace of God, it's possible for everyone in this room? What if it's in your grasp? Would you even want it? Would you seek it? And I think if you're a believer this morning, part of the work that God has done in your life is to bring you to crave, to hunger, and to thirst for righteousness to want to live not a life of half-hearted mediocrity, but to, to live a life that brings glory to the one who made you and redeemed you. And your desire is to live a life that's not wasted, but a life that is poured out in full-hearted sacrifice to the King of glory who is worthy, as we sung. He is worthy of all our praise and honor and the glory that we can give him. And so to reorient our lives is to reorient how we think about greatness and to live in accordance to what he says is great. And I think this morning our text is going to remind us of true greatness. And as we read it and study it and look at it, I have been praying for you who hear that you would be inspired to follow Christ's example of greatness in your own lives. That you would take this to heart, that it would shape your mind, it would reorient your worldview, and that you would be able to move forward in Christ-like love, in obedience, and be called great, not by the world, but by the Savior. We're in Mark chapter 10. I invite you to turn there, and we're going to cover a a couple sections here. Verses 32 to 45, verses 32 to 45 of chapter 10, as we've been kind of working through the gospel of Mark We're now to this part where Jesus is on his way to the cross. And we're going to see an incredible interchange between Jesus and his disciples as he's going there. And I believe 
that you will be moved at the Savior this morning. I think you're going to be moved by him. And this is one of the texts that as I studied and dug, there were times I just, just couldn't help but pause my own study in worship because of the glory of Christ. And the goal of this morning is to help you see how precious he is, glorious and good he is, how amazing is his love, how great was his sacrifice and his determination to redeem the people that the Father had given him. So I'm going to read from verses 32 to 45. Read along with me. Follow in your copy of God's Word in chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them that what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him spit on him, flog him, kill him. After three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them? But it shall not be so among you, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant, And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. It is an amazing passage, and I hope we'll see this. I feel inadequate to talk about the glories we see here, but I'm going to do my best And one of the ways I've decided to divide up this text is to break it into three things that we need to consider as we think about true greatness, as we aspire to biblical greatness and we desire to grow in true greatness. I want to divide the text in three ways and call us to respond to the text in three ways. One is that we would be amazed at the determination of our Savior And two, that we would be alarmed by the attitudes of self-promotion. And three, that we would be aspiring to embrace the identity of a slave. You could probably see those in the text as we just read them. They're pretty stand, pretty, they stand out. They're pretty straightforward. And I want to start by looking at verse 32. So look along with me at chapter 10, verse 32. We'll start there where where we're going to look at our Savior for a little bit. It says, and they were on the road. This is the road back to Jerusalem. It says they were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, this is the the journey that back in verse 17 of the same chapter that Jesus was beginning on when the rich young ruler came and interrupted him, fell on his knees and asked him about eternal life. Well, they pick up the journey again, and they're headed to Jerusalem. It says they're going up to Jerusalem. That would have been more referring to topography and not geography because it's actually south. They're going from north to south and they're going up. It's going up and they're heading downward toward Jerusalem. And it says here that Jesus was walking ahead of them. 
He's walking ahead of them, and it says that those who were with him, the disciples who were following him, were amazed. Now, you read that, as I did with my kids last night, and you've got to pause and say, why were they amazed? What is it that they were amazed by? Why is this? It says then further that those who followed, referring to a different group of people beyond the disciples, it was probably the time, actually not probably, it was the time that travelers, pilgrims, you could say, were traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. So beyond just the disciples following Jesus, at this point in his life as he's heading back to Jerusalem, there are many people on the road that happen to be following along with Jesus. It says the disciples are amazed and those who are following Jesus are also afraid. There's an awe. There's something in the air here, understanding that Jesus is out in front. You say, well, what's going on here? And there's so many times that when you read the Bible, you pass over little details that actually happen to be incredibly important for you understanding the text. In this case, this is exactly what happens. The text says there in verse 32 that they're on the road going to Jerusalem. Now, that is meant in your mind, if you've been following closely, to ring a bell. They're going to Jerusalem. Because if you've been paying attention, it's been Jerusalem that has been the antagonist in the story. Jerusalem has been the place from which the scribes and the Pharisees have been sent to try to take Jesus down. If you were to go back to chapter 3, where were the scribes who came and accused him of being demon-possessed? Where did they come from? They came from Jerusalem. If you were to go to chapter 7, verse 1, where the Pharisees accuse him of eating with unwashed hands and violating the tradition of the elders, where did they come from? They came from Jerusalem. Uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, where are these people from? This is, the, this is the hornet's nest of opposition to Jesus' work in the world. That's what's going on. And it's saying that Jesus is resolved to go to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to die in chapter 8, verse 31. He has already been saying to his disciples that he is going to be handed over, he's going to die, and he's going to rise, and the disciples have not been able to get it. But there's something it seems like that now is beginning to click because they're going to Jerusalem. I think the disciples are beginning to get it. They're going, hang on. You know the, the, the people who want to kill us are, are in Jerusalem. You know the chief priests that are trying to destroy us, the Herodians, they, those, they're all, you know they're over there? The ones that have been trying to discredit you, the ones that have been trying to catch you, the ones that want to kill you, you recognize that that's where they're from? That you're going to, to, to your own death if you're going to march to Jerusalem? And, and, and they're afraid. The pilgrims, they're not even the disciples are understanding that something's ominous about this. The disciples who have been with Jesus all this time are amazed at this, that he's heading back to Jerusalem, he's, he's going, and there's something in the air. There's sometimes that you're reading literature, and there's stories going one direction, and then there's a certain turn of phrase, or there's a certain use of a word that suddenly darkens the tone of the text. That's what's happening here. Suddenly, there's amazement. Suddenly, there's fear. Suddenly, something is ominous and in the air and even the disciples and the pilgrims following them are are noticing there's something on the horizon that's not quite right and maybe they don't fully understand what it is but they do know that going to Jerusalem might be dark dangerous and yet here they are and they're going and not only are they going but Jesus is leading the way he's walking ahead of them now, the disciples not, might not totally know what's about to happen, but Jesus does. Look at the text again. He says he's take, taking the 12 again, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. This is an outright prediction. This is a prophecy. Jesus is literally telling the future. He's making no guesses, and you'll see because of how specific is his prophecy. Watch this. Verse 33, see, we're going up to Jerusalem in the Son of Man. That is a way of referring to himself. It's a reference back to Daniel. It refers to the glorious Son of Man who is the ruler and the chief 
authority over all creation. Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. It is a direct claim to divinity. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. He doesn't say who will deliver him to the chief priests. We know, reading ahead, that it is Judas. He will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Those are the leaders and authorities in Jerusalem. And they will condemn him to death. But it does not say that they themselves will kill Jesus. They will merely condemn him. And after condemning him, it says that they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. This is exactly what will happen. The chief priests and the scribes will not kill Jesus. They will condemn him. They will hand him over to the Romans, who are the Gentiles. And then Jesus begins to describe in great detail exactly what will happen to him when he is handed over to the Romans. Verse 34, they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him, and they will kill him. Jesus is incredibly precise. He knows exactly what he's walking into. He knows exactly what is going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. He knows, I will be mocked, they will spit on me, I will be flogged, and then I will be killed. He's not guessing. He doesn't have some vague idea of people might oppose him. He has a very specific understanding of where he's headed and what exactly the people are going to do to him when he gets there. They're going to mock him and spit on him. This is a, this is a kind of psychological torture. This is not the torture of the body. This is the torture of the mind. This is trying to get at the dignity of the individual to break them down, to degrade them, to dehumanize them. Uh, This is what torturers have done throughout history. When I read that book, Unbroken, uh, about the, uh, and you read that section about the torture methods of the Japanese against the American POWs and the kind of psychological torture they would inflict, it was a central part of breaking down their enemies to try to degrade them and dehumanize them, to make them feel like they were not even human so that they would give up on life itself. I remember reading that book. One captor, after his release, says, I was literally becoming a lesser human being. This is the idea of what mocking does. It's intentional. It's strategic. It's a way of breaking the person down, dehumanizing them in a psychological way. It's a way of torturing the mind, of torturing the dignity, torturing the honor that a person should deserve as an image bearer of God. This is what they're going to do to Jesus, and he knows it. And they're going to express their mockery and ridicule by spitting on him, which is so dishonorable, but it is what they want to do to Jesus, and Jesus knows it. But they're not only going to aim at his mind and his spirit to try to break him down that way, they're going to flog him. This is to take a uh, short whip, like a cat of nine tails type thing, and at the end of the strands there would be shards of metal or glass or sharp bone, and the intention of a flogging was to whip the individual on the back so that those little pieces would stick into the flesh, would tear open the skin, to the degree that often people would die from flogging. They would bleed out when arteries were severed. It was the ability to now begin to attack the body. And the perfect flogging was to flog them to the inch of their life, but keep them alive. It was a kind of strategic way of torture. Again, they're not merely going for the uh, soul. They're not merely going to the mind, to torture the mind. They want to attack the body. And now Jesus knows, he is very sure that he will be flogged. But not only that, it says that they will kill him. They will kill them. That that the trauma that will be given to Jesus' body will result in his death. In other gospels, it makes it clear that Jesus even understands that it will be by crucifixion. He knows it's coming that the kind of torture that his body will receive will result in his lungs no longer being able to breathe, his brain no longer being able to function, his heart no longer being able to beat. He will physically die. His body will be so brutalized that he will not be able to live or survive it. And he marched on. He didn't drag his feet. I think what's happening when the disciples are amazed is is they're beginning to understand the picture of what is going to happen to Jesus. They know that Jerusalem is where the bad guys are. It's the enemy. 
and they're in shock that Jesus is out in front. That's what the text says. There's an amazement, an astonishment, because I think they're all probably dragging their feet because they don't want to go there. Everyone who's been from Jerusalem has been against them. And Jesus is walking out front. He is leading the advance to his own execution. He is leading the death march where he himself will not receive a quick and painless death, but a brutal form of psychological and physical torture that will be incredibly cruel and grotesque. He's out front because of his bold, fearless determination to go in obedience and submission to the Father's will to provide atonement for the people he loves. In other words, I want you to see this and not read it as a mere fact of history, a mere historical event of the life of Christ, but to see this as an expression of the love of the Savior, that he's going out front, that he's marching on his way, knowing what will happen to him so that he can provide atonement, so he can lay his life down and take it up again so that the people whom he loves can be forgiven and can be redeemed. There is a bold determination to walk into this torture for you, church, for you. I mean, behold afresh and rejoice in the determination of your Savior. This is our first point. Be amazed. If we want to grow in greatness, we will become what we behold. Listen to this. We will become what we behold. If you want to understand greatness, behold the greatness of Christ on the road to the cross where he will not let anything get in the way of going to lay his life down for sinners. Isn't he determined? He sets his face like flint. He walks out in front, fearlessly determined to go to Jerusalem and die for sinners. Like me, like you, Look at verse 45, skip ahead, because I want you to see what he's doing. This is incredible. Verse 45, it gives more clarity for, for what he's, he's doing here. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Going, I got to go to Jerusalem. I got to go out front. I got to lead my people there because if the disciples don't see me going, they're not going to go. And I got to go and I got to lay down my life. I have to, I have come not to be served, but to serve. And I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. That word ransom in Greek is the word litron. It refers to the price of release, the price one would pay to free a slave. It's, it's the fee, it's the payment, it's the ransom required to set free those who are in bondage. Jesus is saying, my life is going to be a payment, a ransom, a litron, the fee that I pay to be uh, the, the means of releasing the many, he says there. And the language indicates exactly what is intended by this, that Jesus' death is going to be in the place of the many. Do you see that? He is laying his life down as a ransom, as a payment, in the place of those who cannot pay it for themselves. That's what this means. And here we see again in crystal clarity that this is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. What should have happened to the many, Jesus is doing himself. He is taking upon himself the payment that should have been made by the sinner. Jesus is going to pay for the sins of the many, though he himself have never sinned once. He is going to offer himself as the pure, sinless sacrifice for sin to make payment to satisfy the just wrath of God so that those who could not please God because they're sinners will have someone else who has paid for their sin whom if they trust, they will be counted as righteous themselves. This is the heart of the gospel. That God is holy. 
And you in sin are deserving of his holy and righteous judgment. But Christ came to lay his life down as a ransom for many. He laid his life down to pay for the sins that you could not pay for, and he would rise up again. And now everyone who trusts in the substitute, who trusts in the ransom, the Savior who died and rose for us, will be forgiven all their sins because their sins will be paid for by Jesus. And you don't have to pay for them. And the righteousness that you could never have accrued in all of your life will be credited to your account as if it was your, your very own. He's going to lay his life down as a ransom for many. This is the most incredible news in all the world. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I am so glad you're here. And I want to tell you the best news that you can get in on this. That you, though you have stood guilty before a holy God this very morning, could be reconciled to him because of the work of Christ. That he laid his life down for sinners like you. And he offered himself to be payment for your sins should you trust him. And he took his life up again and he's alive right now. And as the ascended Lord, he stands at the right hand of the Father. He says, his arms are open wide. Come to me, all you guilty sinners, all you weak and weary, all you who know you don't deserve it. Come, eat, drink, feast on my grace. It's yours. Should you turn from your self-righteousness and trust me? Should you turn from your sin and let go of those things and trust me? What a glorious Savior. He went willingly to the cross, did he not? He walked out front. He went boldly. He went determined. What amazing love that the Father has lavished on us. And what amazing love has the Savior demonstrated for us? And I want you to personalize it this morning. You Christians here, you got to personalize this. Jesus didn't go to the cross with some vague, nebulous idea that some people might get saved through this. I hope so. Hope it works out. No, he took names to the cross. He took names to the cross. He was boldly determined to go accomplish your salvation. He had you on his heart when he went to the cross to pay for your sins so that he would most certainly be able to present you pure and blameless before the Father so that your salvation is completely and utterly secure in him. And listen, if he has been so determined to die for you, don't you realize that he is so determined to live for you, to intercede for you, to be your advocate, to ever hold you in his hands, to hold you fast, to never leave you nor forsake you? This is the glorious Savior that we love and we serve. It was on the screen this morning when we sang and I could hardly sing these songs without becoming emotional. That new one we introduced, it's beautiful, isn't it? In tenderness, he sought me. Weary and sick with sin, on his shoulders brought, he brought me back to the fold again. Oh, the grace that brought me. I, I was the sinner. I was wandering. I was lost. And here we see this picture of this bold, determined Savior to go after the lost lambs and to bring them home. What kindness. The second stanza of that new song. He died for me while I was sitting, needy and poor and blind. He whispered to assure me, I found thee. Thou art mine. What a Savior. That he found us. This is sovereign grace. You did not find him, he found you. He came for you. He loved you. He sought you. He brought you. He redeemed you. And he's going to bring you home. Rejoice in this, church. Can we not rejoice in the Savior who is boldly determined to go accomplish the salvation of his people? How can, how can he do this with such utter fearlessness, it seems? Look at verse 34. The end of it. He recites what they're actually going to do to him. They're going to mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. Jesus also knows after three days, he will rise. Son of man, it's not going to remain dead. Jesus says, I will rise. I will die and I will conquer death. I will die as a ransom being the payment for the sins of many, and I will conquer sin in the resurrection. He knows it. 
And the way he can face his impending torture is by understanding that through the torture, there is a glorious resurrection on the other side where he will rise to glory. And as he is humbled, he understands that there will also be an exaltation on the other side of the grave. What a glorious Savior. We ought to worship him this morning. We ought to understand that this is the ultimate hero. I know some of you guys love your superheroes. You love your superheroes. And here's your guy if you love superheroes. This is the champion of champions, Jesus Christ. Deserves all praise and honor and glory, all admiration and respect. Worthy of every possible ounce of praise we can give him. Worthy of every possible ounce of energy we can use to serve him. That is our Savior. The bold determination to love and die for those whom he has saved. What a Savior. Now what's funny, I actually don't know if it's funny. I don't know whether to laugh or cry at this thing. But immediately after this, the, the, the Gospel of Luke says, and the disciples understood none of this. That's what it says. And the reason I don't know whether to laugh or cry is because if I'm completely honest, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a great sermon about sacrificial love, risk-taking obedience, radical generosity, felt so great about it and went home and applied exactly 0% of the sermon. Embarrassing, isn't it? How we can see glory in Christ, understand intellectually what he has done to save sinners, feel really good about it, and apply none of it. None of it. We just don't apply any of it sometimes because we just get going with the next thing. That we are not allowing these things to shape our minds and our hearts and our actions. I love what Paul Tripp says about this. He, he, He makes a profound observation. He says, most of us are tempted to think that change has taken place before it actually has. Talk about change in our own lives. We confuse growth in knowledge and insight with genuine life change. But insight is not change. And knowledge should not be confused with practical, active, biblical wisdom. In short, we must not confuse insight and change Insight and change. You you shouldn't get those confused because often we think because we've had an insight, then we've changed. That's not necessarily the case. It's possible to have an insight and remain the same. Insight is a beginning, a part of the whole, but it is not the whole. That is profoundly important for understanding what we're reading. Because it is possible, like the disciples, to have insight about what Jesus is going to do on the cross and in the resurrection, and have insight into increasing knowledge and not change. And as James says, we deceive ourselves if we do that, and our religion is worthless if that's the case. And so we come to our second point here. That not only do we need to behold the determination of our Savior as he goes to the cross, but we need to be alarmed by the attitudes of self-promotion. Could it be that we have the same attitudes of self-promotion that we're going to see in the disciples here? Watch this. Verse 35. You would have hoped that they went, wow, Jesus We want to follow you to the death, lay down our lives for you, suffer with you if necessary. Watch this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. (laughs) Wow. We want to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wow. 
There, there are attitudes that are coming through here. First one, in this very thing they say, we see the attitude that's demanding. It's a demanding attitude. If you're taking notes, you could write these down. We're going to see three different attitudes that these guys show. First, they're demanding. Teacher, do whatever we want. That's what we want. Carte blanche. Tell us, we're going to tell you what we want, and you're going to do it for us. You might think the request is worthy of rebuke, and it could be, but Jesus is incredibly gentle here. He responds not with rebuke. He simply asks, what do you want me to do for you? Gentle response, and they respond with their desires here. Verse 37, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. That's what we want. No, no big deal. We just want to sit at the right and left hand of the throne of glory. That's all. You know, no big deal. What's going on here is it becomes pretty clear that the disciples actually still thought that Jesus' return to Jerusalem was the setting up of the Messianic kingdom. That's what they thought. That Jesus is going to go in, the, the Jerusalem you know, chief priests are finally going to recognize that here's the Messiah, and they're going to let him sit on the throne of David, and he's going to set up his kingdom, and and that's what they're still thinking. They, they still got kingdom on the mind. This has been the case ever since Jesus brought up his death. They just can't get it. And so they're still wanting to just stand. They, they want to march into Jerusalem. They want the people to, to recognize him as their king. And they want to sit in there in the kingdom glory at the right and left hands. The two highest positions of honor. Of course, besides the Davidic throne itself, they want the best seats. They are demanding. But they're not only demanding, they're ignorant. Self-promotion is ignorant. Look at their response here. Jesus replies to them in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. You're ignorant. You have no idea what you're asking here. You're asking for honor. You have no idea what you're asking. Because he goes on to say, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, uh, these are both metaphors for suffering. The cup of suffering that Christ is to drink the baptism into suffering that he is to be baptized into, he's saying, are you able to do this? You able to under- do you understand that following me, and, and you understand that asking for glory, you understand that asking for the highest exalted positions in the kingdom, you understand that to ask for those things is to ask to suffer with me? You get that? Because in Jesus' mind, which is the perfect mind, which is the perfect way to understand this universe, is to understand that true glory is always and only attained through the pathway of suffering. You're going to ask for glory, then you've got to understand something. The pathway to glory is the path of self-denial. That you're going to deny yourself and take up your cross if you want to truly follow me. And I wonder how many of us, uh, how often we as a church are asking for glory. We're, we're asking for big glorious things, not having any clue that the things that we're asking for are only realized through suffering, through humbling. They're ignorant of that. And self-promotion doesn't understand that the glorious exaltations that is promised to believers is always through tribulation. It is always through persecution. It is always through opposition. It is always through suffering, that the way up is always down in the economy of Christ. So they're ignorant of that. But third, they're also arrogant, self-reliant, arrogant. Verse 39, and they said to him, yeah, we're able. (laughs) We got this. Suffering? The cup, the baptism, oh, yeah, 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 we, we could do that. Uh, we, we, easy. How arrogant, and yet how common. How common in our own lives that we are so arrogantly self-reliant, thinking that we can do all these things that God has called us to do in our own strength. You know that the, uh, the way our arrogance is most prominently displayed is in sometimes these these ways that no one else really notices. The arrogance of the average Christian is demonstrated in his or her lack of studying the Bible, a lack of prayer life, lack of understanding of what the meaning of devotion, lack of abiding in Christ. Why? Because if you don't think the Bible's necessary, what you are thinking is that you could do it without his word. 
And if you don't think prayer is necessary, then you're thinking that you could live your life without the empowering work of God. You're you're trying to do it without him. And so we might all go, oh, I would never say we are able. Look at these disciples. They're so self-reliant. They're so arrogant. And yet our arrogance is on display every day and every week. We go through the motions without coming afresh to the gospel, looking to Christ for resources, looking in his word for direction, looking in the scriptures for wisdom. Every time we're going through life without any sense of reliance upon God, we are just like these disciples. We are demanding, we are ignorant, we are arrogant, we're thinking we can do all these things apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's a killer in the church. It is an absolute killer in the church. And here's the most dangerous thing, is that you can be really busy in the flesh. And everyone will approve of your busyness because it looks really spiritual. You can do all the ministries, show up to all the events, show up to all the Bible studies, all the growth groups, all the Sunday school classes, learn all the theology. You can be meeting one-on-one and you can do it all in the flesh. Without the dependence upon God, without reliance upon the Holy Spirit, you could be doing it all in the flesh. And we might never verbalize it, but we would be just like these disciples who are arrogant and self-reliant and trusting in our own strength, particularly those of you who are gifted in, in areas. Maybe you're gifted with theology, or maybe you're gifted with relationships, or you have particular gifts that are offered to the church. How easy is it to begin to minister out of your giftedness rather than dependence on the Holy Spirit? How often are we just doing things because it's always been the way we've done it? We're just going through the motions of service because that's what we're supposed to do. And then people are patting you on the back and thanking you and encouraging you in those ways. And perhaps all you've ever been doing it or the way you've been doing it has been in the flesh, according to your own human resources, which lack the resources of God. That's what's happening with them. Some of us have a sense of swagger in our Christian lives. We are able We feel we need to be broken down. We need to be humbled. We need to suffer. We need to fail. James and John needed to suffer, and they would, and then they would become useful. Peter, I mean, this sounds like Peter later on. Peter goes, I'll never leave you. I'll never deny you. Everyone else will, not me. Denies him three times. I mean, James and John all flee too when the going gets rough. They're not as strong as they think they are. They're arrogant. And I wonder if we are understanding how that same arrogance is in our own hearts. This attempt to serve the Lord without the Lord. To do the work of the Spirit without the Holy Spirit. And you know what happens when we do that? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing of any spiritual value, at least. Impossible for a sermon to be preached and nothing happens. For ministry to be done and nothing happens. Because if the Spirit's not in it, the flesh is of no strength at all. We can do nothing. I wonder if we are sometimes adopting this arrogance, this desire to be self-promoting. It shows itself in so many ways. It's almost like... We really couldn't unpack it all this morning, but you got to really ask yourself the question, if we're going to apply some of these things to our life, is are you a self-promoting person? Are you someone who's just demanding certain blessings from God? You're, you're ignorant of the cost of discipleship, and you're arrogant and thinking you could do all these things on your own, and because you're doing it in your own strength, you're doing it for your own glory, those things go hand in hand. If you do it in your own strength, you do it for your own glory. And you want your own exaltation, just like these disciples. I wonder if you, like these disciples, crave recognition. Do you want to be noticed and appreciated? Do you harbor bitterness when you're not? Do you resent when others are recognized and you are not? Do you have a hard time celebrating the success of others? People who are self-promoting do all those things. That's why what happens next, look at the text, verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. 
what are you guys doing trying to self-promote? This kind of self-promotion always results in division. Humility results in pride, but, or sorry, humility results in unity. Pride always lends itself to disunity. So we have them there starting to fight. And then Jesus begins to teach, and this is where we're going to land. This is the end. The third way to kind of put on display true greatness. Third way to grow in greatness. First, it was beholding Jesus and his determination. Second, it's being alarmed at the disciples as they vie for self-promotion. And third, it's to embrace the identity of a slave. To embrace the identity of a slave. He called them, verse 42, he said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is a describing abusive authority. These are pejorative words that are used by Jesus to talk about the way that leaders are exploiting and oppressing those underneath them. They are emphatic and pejorative words. If it's not not clear, Jesus is not anti-authority. He is anti the abuse of authority. And so he's talking about the way that the world exercises authority is, is through abuse and oppression. They lord it over those over them. They lord it over those so they can gain from the people they are oppressing. But what Jesus now tells us to do is to take the identity of a slave. It shall not be among you, verse 43, but whoever would be great among you. There it is, guys, true greatness. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, diakonos, deacon, same word, this idea of lowly servant, helper, assistant, one who does the work behind the scenes without any desire to be noticed. If you want to be great, be that guy, be that girl, be the servant of all, verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, do loss. The idea of slavery to others, that we see ourselves as the lowest on the social strata, we're the bottom of the totem pole, we're the lowest worker, we are to be slaves of all. If you want to be true greatness, change your identity. Look at yourself differently, walk into the room and say, I'm the slave of everyone here. I'm the slave of everyone here. I'm here to serve Jesus Christ. The way I'm going to do that is by imitating him. And the way I'm going to imitate him is by being a slave. I'm not here to get recognition. I'm not here to get accolades. I don't want to put some more trophies on the shelf. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to serve behind the scenes, to do my duty, because it's a glorious privilege to serve King Jesus and to serve the people of God. That's what I'm here to do. And so I, I'm going to do my work. And I don't expect anyone to notice. Turn with me to Luke 17, and this is where we'll end. Luke 17, Jesus tells a parable that to our modern ears seems unfair. Luke 17, verses 7 to 10. Jesus says, will any one of you who has a servant, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? He's basically using this idea of a servant that's been working all day and plowing and keeping the sheep and doing all that, and he comes in and And the master says, oh, good job, you've done all this work, Uh, just come, recline, your work's done. He says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. In other words, the guy's worked in the field, he's worked uh, among the sheep, and he comes in, and Jesus is saying, what's going to happen? He doesn't let him rest yet. There's more work to be done. Get me food ready. Dress up properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And then verse 9, this is so countercultural. This is, does he thank the servant because he did what is commanded? In other words, that's what the servant was supposed to do. That's what the job of the servant is. That's what slaves do. It's not outside of his duty. It's not extraordinary. He doesn't even need to thank them because that's how servants are. That's what they do. And then Jesus uses this as an analogy in verse 10, so also you. When you have done all that you were commanded, 
what do you do? You say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. When you serve King Jesus, this is what you do. You say, it's, it's nothing special for me to serve like I serve. It's nothing special. It's not worthy of any attention. I don't need to be noticed. I don't crave the human applause. I have been redeemed. And it is a glorious privilege to serve my master. I don't need human applause. To serve him at all is enough. It is glorious in and of itself. I don't need recognition. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing special about my service. This is what I've been called to do. This is what I do. And how great is it to be in a church environment where no one's vying for greatness, looking for honor, serving because they crave people to recognize them. They're simply serving God and they say, don't even recognize me. This is just my duty to serve my master. What a glorious church that's like to be a part of. I like how MacArthur put it. He goes, don't make anything out of me. I'm just a servant of Christ. I'm an under rower. I'm a third-level galley slave. I pull my oar, and that's what I'm supposed to do. Nothing worthy of any special attention. Is that how you serve? Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life up. True greatness is found in looking at him as he does that. And then we analyze our own hearts, and we go, but am I like the disciples who are self-promoting Seeking my own glory, being demanding and ignorant and arrogant to try to attain a position that only comes through sacrifice and suffering. And then it is to learn from Christ and say, I can't be self-promoting, I have to be self-denying, I have to take the posture of a slave, I have to take the posture of a servant because that's my Savior and it is my most glorious privilege to do so. Would you apply these truths this week? Would you talk to someone about them and consider how in your own life you could adopt the posture of a slave in obedience and in imitation of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Now, Lord, this is again beyond us. So, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would shape, convict, guide our hearts and minds, do the work that we cannot do, humble us. Lord, in our marriages, help us to be servants of one another. In our parenting, help us to be servants. If we're children, I pray that even children would understand the call on their lives to imitate Jesus and to be like a servant. Lord, in whatever relational dynamic we find ourselves in, pray, Lord, that in observing Christ, we would see that true greatness is servanthood. It is self-denial. It is laying our lives down for others, like Jesus. And it's in his name.